Please remain standing for the reading of the New Testament, Mark chapter 10, reading verses 1 through 12. Again, Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, just the first 12 verses, God's Word. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. They shall no longer be two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to us. So we like our rights, whether it's free speech or arming ourselves or pleading the fifth, we prize our rights and we will, without a doubt, fight for them. Indeed, few things make us squawk more than someone denying us our rights. And there seems to be a great deal of squealing going on nowadays. For everywhere you look, someone is complaining about not having their rights. The news nightly does a piece on some group that were deprived of their rights. TikTok rages with people protesting that they were refused their rights. It seems constant. And yet as you listen to the complaints, the list of rights and liberty people claim to be seem to be ever-growing. Entitlements are listed as human rights that make you scratch your head. The right to a stress-free workplace. Sounds good, but is that even possible? Who can ensure such a right? In fact, one of the tendencies of us as sinners is to ever assert more rights for ourselves. And thus it's good for us to regularly check in with Scripture and to be reminded of the rights God does give us and the ones he does not. And our Lord does this by showing us his law in order to humble us and to drive us to the gospel. So our Lord is on his way to Jerusalem, and for the first time since his baptism, Mark has Jesus head south to enter Judea and the region just over the Jordan River. He is in new territory, and the cross is just appearing on the horizon. But this newness brings the same old, same old. Crowds flock to Jesus, and as is his custom, he is teaching them. Public preaching on the road, nothing new has happened. And keeping with the usual, some Pharisees walk up with some questions. It wouldn't be a day of ministry without some Pharisaic opposition. And sure enough, they are testing Jesus, which means they want to trip him up and get him in trouble. And they set a snare by asking him 
Can a man divorce his wife? Theirs is a legal inquiry, a quiz of morality under the Mosaic law. Does a man have the right to divorce his wife and be so guiltless? Though what prompted this interrogation, we're not sure. And how this is supposed to trap Jesus is cloudy. Presumably, if Jesus said, if Jesus said yes, divorce is okay, then they could charge him with being weak on morals. Or if he said no, they could accuse him as being against the law. Yet their scheme may have another target. From what we can gauge, divorce was more popular with the public. And Jesus' popularity with the crowds have hampered the Pharisees' plots to destroy Jesus. The Pharisees then may be trying to get Jesus to take an unpopular position to stain his fame and thus make him more vulnerable. Either way, this is not an honest question, but a devious examination to hurt our Lord. And Jesus ably undresses their scheme by answering their question with his own question. What did Moses command you? It is kind of silly to ask a legal question when the law lays out the answer quite frankly. By this, Jesus calls their bluff, and he takes control of the conversation for his own intentions and purposes. And so the Pharisees refer to the correct passage in Deuteronomy 24 about divorce. There, if a man was displeased with his wife for some obnoxious or indecent act, he could divorce her. He gave her a certificate of divorce and sent her away. The man then was legally innocent, and both were free to remarry. And the ground for divorce was fairly broad. The law says in Deuteronomy, an indecent or obnoxious act, but we're not really sure what this is, but it's a lot less than adultery. For remember, adultery was punished by death under Moses, so divorce doesn't apply. Rather, for some displeasing indecency, the man had a right to divorce. And the law left the matter to the will of the man. It was up to him. Moreover, under Moses, the wife did not have the right to sue for a divorce. A wife could not divorce, but the husband could. And this law from Deuteronomy 24 very much shaped the current practice among the Jews. By the first century, the rabbis did debate the grounds for divorce. There was a stricter position that said a man could only divorce for adultery. Since the Jews lost the ability to execute under Rome, they made adultery the grounds for divorce. However, there was a more liberal position, which said a man could divorce for any reason. Technically, this position was more in line with Deuteronomy, and it seemed to be the widespread practice. Now, we have no stats for how common divorce was among the Jews. Was the divorce rate 20%, 45%, or 5%? We have no idea. Yet three factors are crucial in this practice. One, divorce rested on the will of the man. Two, there was generally no moral shame or social stigma to divorce. It was his legal right, 
and he was innocent. Three, the, the purpose of the bill of divorce was precisely for remarriage. In fact, we have the form of the bill which said to the lady, Lo, thou art free to marry any man. The certificate of divorce was also called a letter of dismissal and even a deed of liberation. It liberated the woman from her husband and made her free to remarry whoever she wished. Well, this is the current Jewish practice in which Jesus answers this question about divorce. Though it's also likewise necessary to consider the Roman practice of marriage and divorce, which would have been very important for Mark's readers. In Roman culture, marriage was basically a family institution and not one of the state. Marriage was based on the will of the couple, the man and the woman, and cohabitation. If the boy and girl wanted to and they started living together, they were de facto married. No priest or no politician was involved, and no paperwork with the state had to be filed. The only legal contract dealt with the dowry and property. Therefore, since marriage was based on the couple's desire, so divorce was as easy as wanting it. Both men and women could institute a divorce in Rome, and no reason had to be given It was no fault to force. In fact, it was so easy, we have records of a woman sending a letter of divorce to her husband, and no one else even knew about it. The legal proceedings dealt with dowry, property, and kids, but not the divorce. Though again, we do not know how common divorce was. We do know in Latin literature there was a theme of men complaining about their wives being difficult. We know that some women had a rebellious attitude towards motherhood and wanted more sexual freedom. In a digest of Roman laws, it says that for reasons like old age, sickness, and military service, it was inconvenient to maintain a marriage, and so it was to be dissolved with goodwill. We also know that the Emperor Augustus was concerned about the Roman family, and so he passed laws to encourage larger families and to forbid celibacy, though these laws had little impact as people could get around them. So basically, in the Roman world, no-fault divorce was easily had, and there was no social stigma or moral blemish for getting a divorce. And it's into this setting that Jesus gives his teaching on marriage and divorce. The Pharisees rightly cited the law, and so now the Lord turns it back on them. He says, you know Moses gave you this command due to the hardness of your heart. Your hard-hearted, stubborn sinfulness is why divorce was permitted. This law then was a mercy Israel was a rebellious child, and so the Lord was lenient with them. But this doesn't fit smoothly with the law. Indeed, the Mosaic law was categorized by strictness and exactitude. Narrowly speaking, the law had no mercy. It did, after all, execute the adulterer. How can it be so deadly towards adultery and so loose with divorce? Well, by this term for hard-heartedness, And the context of divorce, 
Jesus alludes to Jeremiah 4. There, the Lord entered a divorce court to put away his people in exile for the indecency of idolatry. For their hard-heartedness, the Lord divorced his covenant bride, Israel. In Scripture, marriage and God's covenant with his people are always analogs. This is, in fact, why the man, under Moses, only had the prerogative to divorce in order to image that the Lord alone could send Israel away. Israel could not divorce the Lord, but for her sin, he could send her away. Our Lord's point, then, is that the Mosaic law permitted divorce to showcase the conditionality of the law. Divorce was not lenient, but it was a warning that if Israel was not obedient, then the Lord would cast her off. However, the period of the law is coming to an end. Jesus is restoring marriage back to its created purpose. From the beginning of creation, here our Lord takes us back to the very beginning. Indeed, to say the beginning of creation, he's highlighting a cosmic reality. This is part of the very fabric of creation that God fashioned. It's an element of the created order. God made them male and female. God created two genders, male and female. This is a law and reality of nature just as integral as gravity or the need for water. Despite what the perversity of our culture says, there's only two genders. God made woman and God made man, and it was very good. In fact, in the Greek culture of the day, there was an androgynous myth which said that humans were first androgynous and later were separated apart. Well, our Lord affirms Genesis to expose this as a lie. Now, sure, evil and sin twist, confuse, and pervert the distinction between male and female. But the truth of Scripture leads us to recognize This created reality. Though our Lord cites the fact of male and female for its purpose of marriage. Because there's boys and girls, a guy leaves his mom and dad to hold fast and cling to his wife. Now the function and roles of genders are bigger than the issue of marriage. But key to them is getting married. The man clings to his wife. But the word here for cling means a lot more than sexual union. In fact, cling has covenantal connotations of fidelity, exclusive devotion, and commitment. In Deuteronomy, this clinging is what Israel was to, to do to the Lord. They were called to love and cling to God with fealty and undying loyalty. So the man is committed with exclusive intimacy and faithful love to his bride and she to him. Such covenant devotion is enduring, unbroken, and steadfast. This verse also shows how male and female, marriage and procreation is essential to the survival of the human race. Without men and women having babies, Humanity would cease to exist. 
Though our Lord is primarily interested in the resulting relationship of the marriage union. The groom clings to his wife, and the two become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one. And flesh here has the sense of blood relatives. One flesh is not some mystical, uh, metaphysical notion, but it concretely communicates as blood relatives. In the Old Testament, your parents or siblings are bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And this fleshly union you have with your sister or your dad is part of who you are, and it cannot change. You can disown your mom, but it doesn't alter the fact that she is still your mother. This is the thrust of this verse. By becoming one flesh, the couple becomes a new family unit. Just as procreation creates a new life, so marriage forms a new family. Husbands and wives are joined as one, flesh of flesh, in a common life. With this, our Lord excludes polygamy as being out of accord with the created law. And he casts the marriage bond as permanent. The married couple becomes one, a lifelong family. Therefore, having set forth the created reality of Genesis 1 and 2, Jesus makes the conclusion to his point. Therefore, what God has joined together. Sure, the boy pops the question to his sweetheart. The lady says yes to her man. The couple decides to get married. And yet, as a created bond, the marriage is an act of God joining together. The Lord ultimately yokes man and woman, together as one flesh. Jesus underscores marriage is an act of God. He created marriage, God witnesses marriage, and the Lord's law governs marriage. And if God does something, then man, humans, have no right to undo it. Only God has the authority to alter one of his acts. Humans possess no right or liberty to change something performed by God. Thus, Jesus issues the law, let man not separate. Man shall not separate what God joined. Though this word for separate is regularly employed in the context of marriage for divorce, this line means what God has joined, let man not divorce. Our Lord prohibits and outlaws divorce here. Jesus repeals the Mosaic law that allowed for divorce and returns the law back to its pristine created form. The authority of Jesus stands out here in bold letters. He undoes the Mosaic law for divorce and he denies humans the right to execute a divorce. The no-fault Easy divorce of both Romans and Jews, our Lord condemns. Though Jesus is not so much concerned about the evil of the world, he doesn't advocate for societal change, rather his point is that we should not be like the world. The world is evil and so it will be evil, but we should not participate in its easy divorce. As my people, says Jesus, no divorce for you. Rooted in creation, Jesus does not give us the right to divorce. 
And if this seems a bit strong to you, you're not alone. For now the disciples pull Jesus aside to ask him about this privately. He can't really be saying no divorce, can he? And then our Lord lays it on even thicker. Whoever divorces and remarries commit adultery. Here Jesus acknowledges the reality of divorce. It's going to happen, and either party can instigate it. The woman can divorce as well as the man. But whoever divorces and then remarries, they commit adultery against their first spouse. This is equally radical. For as we pointed out, divorce certificates meant the freedom to remarry. The bill said you're free to remarry with no hint of adultery. But Jesus says no. Divorce plus remarriage equals adultery, which means divorce was not valid. And so the, the, the remarriage was a sinful violation of the first marriage. Our Lord is being strict here. He's more exacting than Moses here. Indeed, we want to raise our hands in protest and says and say, but what about? Our minds flood with exceptions. What about adultery? What about idolatry, abuse, or desertion? Aren't these grounds for a legal divorce? And yes, Jesus and Scripture does lay out a few exceptions for a biblical divorce, particularly sexual immorality and desertion. But this is one of the follies of our age. We tend to legislate by the exception. We think of the million unique exceptions and write rules that are convoluted and hard to follow. But Scripture sets forth the, the clean ideal of God's law and then provides a few exceptions that we have to apply with wisdom and with utmost care. In this way, the priority of obedience and God's will is held high and prominent. Indeed, the key question is, why doesn't Jesus mention exceptions here? In Matthew's version of this very story, Jesus mentions divorce for sexual morality. But in Mark, the Lord prohibits divorce, let not man divorce, and he categorizes all remarriage as adultery. Why? Because Jesus' point is to drive home the full force of the law. Jesus is laying out the pure law here without mercy. You shall not divorce, and remarriage is adultery. This is the cold, hard steel of the law. It pierces, crushes, and cuts. For it is true that marriage can be a wonderful blessing and a delightful joy. But as sinners, we can twist marriage into a ghastly evil. Two sinners living in the, under the same roof, this is like a skunk and a badger sharing the same den. It's a whole lot of fangs and stench. Husbands punch and betray, wives belittle and demean, and the bond of love becomes a competition to dominate and control. Within the beautiful creation of marriage, people commit some of the most atrocious crimes. But 
Thus, before this marriage law, without divorce, we all stand condemned. Sure, some of us have gotten wrongful divorces, but we've all failed in our marriages. We commit adultery with our eyes. We show hatred to our spouse instead of love. We desert the other to live for ourselves. And so Jesus sets forth the marriage law in all its force to expose that we all fall short. We all stand condemned. And yet just as we are undone, Jesus changes the Mosaic law to drive us to the gospel. The man's liberty to divorce under Moses was a lesson that God could divorce his people for their sin. For Israel's indecency, the Lord cast them off in exile. Jesus, though, changes the option to divorce to no right to divorce in order to reflect his new covenant. Yes, by getting rid of divorce, Jesus is saying that in his new covenant with us, he will never divorce you. That he has set his love upon you and he will never remove it. Christ's grace is so devoted to you that he died upon the cross to make you his bride. Indeed, Jesus doesn't engage himself to us as if we were pure, spotless virgins. Hardly. Rather, like Israel, fallen in Adam, we divorced God and played the harlot with evil and perversity. We were the washed-out prostitutes in the street that Jesus shed his blood for to make us his bride. His love forgives, it redeems, it purifies and sanctifies us. And in his gospel love, Jesus promises that he will never cast you off. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This is the gospel of matrimony that Jesus proclaims to you and comforts you with as a free gift of grace. Even though we constantly stumble in our marriages or in our marriage to Christ, he is ever faithful and just to forgive us. He even pardons our adulteries, our divorces, and our infidelities. No sin is too great for the love of Christ. His grace can restore our broken relationships, and his love can give us new spouses where once sin destroyed. In his death and resurrection, Jesus unites you to himself. You are united to Christ so that you, he will never let you go. And it's by this sweet and imperishable love that his grace flourishes in you so that we might love and be faithful to him forever. Thus praise the Lord that we are the bride of Christ, all of grace, that he's given us marriage to image his love for us, and that he's given us the hope that our wedding day of resurrection will surely come, and may it come quickly. Amen. Let us pray.